We're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture this morning from the book of Matthew. Uh, As we read through these passages, we're going to see two pictures of faith. On the one hand, you have a Gentile woman whose faith is described by Jesus as great. On the other hand, you're going to see Jesus' own disciples, and Jesus says that their faith is not even amount to the size of a mustard seed. So keep that in mind as we read these passages. First passage is Matthew 15, 21 through 28. That's on page 821 of the Bibles from the back if you have one of those. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The next passage is just a few pages over, Matthew seventeen fourteen through 20. Again, Jesus is dealing with a uh, demoniac here. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tim. Just a brief word of apology with regard to me both preaching and baptizing. That's not frequent. We try not to do that. We have four pastors. But in this particular case, I was programmed to preach today and next Lord's Day, and Lynn desired that I might baptize her because of what I said earlier. So this is not the the Ted Chrisman show. I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and then later we will come back to the very passages that Tim read for us. Just be there in Hebrews 11. Now, for some time, the pastors, as well as some of you, our dear sheep, have felt an increased burden for our church to become more prayerful. That would be true individually and corporately. And so, we have given out the 40 days 
prayer devotional that Pastor Mark made reference to. I just want you to see it. We've gotten really good feedback. It's been a blessing to work through it day by day. Hope you'll get one. And we are posting each week brief videos of our friend, Professor Don Whitney, as he gives instruction on how to pray the Scriptures. And we are encouraging you to purchase and read his recently published book on that subject. It's called Praying the Bible. Pastor Mark did that for us today. And we all need to grow in that grace. That's something we're encouraging everyone to do. And rather radically, I must say, the pastors have decided to cancel all of our adult Disciple U classes for the months of September, October, November in order to call us to 13 weeks of corporate prayer in the chapel from 9.30 to 10.15. The normal Sunday school program will continue for children, but for adults, we're going to be in that chapel and we're hoping to meet with God in ways that we've never met with Him before. And we want all of you to come, even if you've never been involved in that. Please join us for that time of prayer. And then finally, obviously, we're emphasizing the importance of prayer by preaching this six-week sermon series entitled, Pray Like This. Now, last Lord's Day morning, Mark launched the series by helpfully giving us a clear and practical overview of what we call the Lord's Prayer, showing us the pattern for our prayers. In that sermon, we were reminded that when we come to our Heavenly Father, we are to be first and foremost preoccupied, and I underscore that word, preoccupied with His name, His kingdom, and His will. In other words, His glory. As a rule, we ought not to start praying with what we could call our grocery list. But we should start our prayers generally with His self-exalting, redemptive agenda. What is the dearest thing to the heart of God? Namely, His name, His kingdom, His will. And as those who through converting grace have been changed from the inside out, we should no longer be preoccupied first and foremost with our name and our little rival kingdom and our selfish will, but His glory. There's a sense in which an unconverted person cannot pray the Lord's Prayer even though they can parrot it. To really desire that God's name be set apart and that His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven is to have a changed heart and is to long that he would be glorified. In effect, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that revolves around the advancement of worldwide missions beginning here in Owensboro. And when we've learned how to be first and foremost preoccupied with that, then we can legitimately talk to our Father about our daily provisions 
our need for forgiveness and our need for deliverance from evil. So, if you missed Mark's message, please take time to listen to it or watch it online. In fact, please discipline yourself to do that whenever you have to miss a message. It's a wonderful privilege for us to be able to catch what we missed previously. So, we've seen the pattern for prayer, but here's what I want to say to you this morning. In order to pray successfully with real results, with increasing results, with miraculous results, with supernatural results, what the older writers called efficacy, prayers that were effective, in order for us to enjoy and to experience what those same older writers used to call prevailing prayer. And we say sometimes, you know, you went in to try to uh, win a certain cause. Did you prevail? In order for us to pray in such a way, we're going to need more than a pattern, as important as that pattern is. And the Lord knew that. Jesus knew that. We're going to need more than knowledge about a well-ordered prayer. We will, in fact, need something else first. There is a prerequisite to successful, effective praying. And it's found in a simple little verse here in Hebrews chapter 11. And I draw your attention now to that verse. It's verse 6. Let me read it, make a few comments on it, lay down a theological foundation for the rest of my sermon. So, what does it say? He just finished speaking about Enoch. And the last words of verse 5 says that Enoch pleased God. See that? And then the writer goes right into the statement. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Just a few comments. You see the prerequisite of faith. The writer says it's impossible to please God, and he has in mind particularly in our approach to him in prayer, it's impossible to please him without faith. Faith in two things, at least, in this text. Faith, first of all, in the fact that He exists. He is real. He is alive. He is not a figment of our imagination. We must believe in the existence of God. And, of course, the Bible teaches that, in fact, we're all born with that inner persuasion. We just suppress the truth in our unrighteousness because we don't want someone ruling over our lives. But in order to please Him... We must be fully persuaded that, in fact, he does exist. And, what's the second thing? Look at it in the text. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You're not going to go to the God that you believe exists if you think he's not a rewarder. Oh, yes, I know God exists, but he never does anything for those who appeal to him. So the writer is saying we must be persuaded of his existence 
And we must be persuaded of his tenderness and his grace and his mercy and his willingness to be appealed to in order for us to approach him in prayer in a way that pleases him. So isn't that clear? I mean, there's nothing profound about that. Just let me read the text again. It it makes sense, almost without comment. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, and he has prayer in mind, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Brothers and sisters, there is no grace in the Christian life that gives more honor and glory to God than faith. Think about that. Faith by its very nature looks outside of itself. It relies on something or someone else. In the case of prayer, that someone, of course, is God. And faith enables and even requires us to come before God empty-handed. We love to sing that wonderful song by Augustus Toplady in which we find these words, especially we think of it in terms of salvation, as nothing in my hand or hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's what getting saved is about. It's realizing that you are under the judgment of God, that you not only deserve hell, but hell is certain for you, and the only hope is that your sins be paid for, and they were paid for on the cross for all who will trust him. There Jesus was taking the judgment of God that we all deserve, the punishment. He was making the payment for us. And the good news of the gospel is that whoever trusts in this Savior, calls upon his name, goes to that cross and clings to it, with empty hands will be saved. Now I'm saying to you that in a similar way, we may think of those words in the hymn like this. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy throne I cling. That's what prayer is. It's an empty-handed, complete, total reliance upon the goodness and mercy and grace of the God who exists. And so we come to him by faith. So, you see, there is no grace that gives God more honor than faith. And I just want to remind you of the obvious then, that when we come to God by faith, with faith, We please Him. Now, follow my biblical logic. If we can't please God without faith, what of necessity must we conclude when we draw near with faith? We have to conclude it pleases Him. And here is where I want to make a very, 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 very important observation. I'm going to 
transition now from what was relatively obvious that many of you probably already knew, didn't need help with regard to, that obviously we must come to God with faith if we're going to pray and expect an audience with him. But what you may not be quite so clear on is this, that faith is a dynamic grace. It is a grace that doesn't stay the same. It is meant to grow and mature and expand in our lives and be reflected in the way we pray. It is a growing grace. And here is the deepest burden of my heart for this particular sermon on prayer. I want you to appreciate with me, or maybe come to understand for the first time, that increased faith produces increased results. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Increased faith, growing in faith, will result in increased results in our prayer life. That may not be something that you have thought about. But it is a fact. And most of us, me included for sure, do not adequately appreciate or appropriate the vastness, the expansiveness, the often unqualifiedness, the great breadth of the prayer promises given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. Brothers and sisters, those prayer promises are so generous. They're so liberal. They're so wide. And frequently they are unqualified in the way they are presented. And this is in such a way that it's almost hard for us to believe them. They almost frighten us. I'm say, I read that and say, that scares me because I don't live that way. I've never really done anything in response to that promise. And I think we get a bit insecure and somehow just quickly move on. And when you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, look what that text says. Does my prayer life reflect a total persuasion that God meant what he said when he said that? Let me read a few of them for you. It's been a blessing to go through these things this week. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Matthew 17, 20 and 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, and Jesus probably looked at the mountain they had just descended, Move from here to there. And it will move. And then he goes on to say this, listen. And nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing. Matthew 18, 19, if two of you agree on earth about anything... They ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Matthew 21, 22. If you have faith and do not doubt, notice he's concerned about doubt. If you have faith and do not doubt, 
Even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. Mark eleven twenty four. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Does that make you uncomfortable? Believe that you've received it. Wait a minute. You're, you're telling me to go ahead and be presumptuous about this? I've heard people quote that. There, there's the whole prosperity approach to the gospel, and it seems like, it just seems like it's an exploitation, and, and, and often it is. But wait a minute. Is it in the Bible or not? Does the Bible say this or not? Did Jesus say this or not? If Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. What are you going to do with that text? Just explain it away? And, and I have to confess that my proneness is to say, well, i got to tell you, first of all, what it doesn't mean. And then I'm going to talk about how it's abused. And then I'm going to say, so, what else are we going to talk about? And I'm going to move away from it. Mark 9.23, all things are possible to the one who believes. John 14.13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 15.7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 16.23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive. All of these verses fell from the lips of our Savior. And then James tells us, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. If our heart does not condemn us, 1 John three twenty one and 22, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the, resu- the request that we have asked of him. Now, I-, I hope that you who are alert and discerning were saying, hey, PT, I heard some qualifications in some of those texts. You did. Some of them were unqualified, Many of them were qualified. We must ask in faith. That's a qualification. We must ask in the name of Jesus. That's a qualification. We must be careful how we live. We have to have a good conscience. We have to, His word must abide in us and we in it. Yes, those are qualifications. And the fundamental one of them all is that if we ask anything according to His will... I understand that. I believe that. I preach that. I teach that. I try to live by that. But I'm asking you, dear brothers and sisters, is that the only thing we fixate on? The qualifications? And what about the passages where Jesus didn't feel obligated to add a qualification? What is he trying to do? He's encouraging us to be bold. He's encouraging us to have a strong faith. He's encouraging us to learn how to look at a mountain and say, you need to move. And I just want to insert this sort of applicatory question right in the middle of the sermon. What mountains are you trying to move? Mountains, not foothills. What mountains are you trying to move right now, these days in your life? Do you have to pause and think about it? 
Could you quickly write on a three-by-five card two or three mountains that you, by faith, are seeking to move? Now, I, I, don't, I don't really get involved with mountain-moving prayer. Why? Why? Jesus wasn't talking about literally the mountain moving. He was talking metaphorically things that are just utterly impossible. That, that's, that's just not going to happen. You're talking about a miracle here. You're talking about something supernatural. And Jesus says, yes, yes. And so, what's the problem? Is there any of that kind of praying in our prayer lives? Does Heritage Baptist Church ask God to move mountains when we gather corporately? Do you as an individual seek to move mountains? I've already admitted that there are those who abuse these texts, so I don't want anybody going away here and saying, well, he doesn't seem to be concerned about their abuse. I am concerned about their abuse, but let me submit to you. We abuse them too. I'll tell you how we abuse them. We don't believe them. We don't pray them. We don't try them. We don't dare to ask for a mountain to be moved from here to there. We abuse them by explaining away how they're abused by others. Okay, let's, let's acknowledge that they can be abused, but let's embrace them for their intent. They're designed to encourage us. So if you're following me, I'm just being really simple about this. Hebrews 11.6 says that you can't approach God uh, in a way that will please him if you don't have faith that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. We've got that down. We've had that down pretty good. And I'm saying to you that the faith that enables us to approach this God and to ask favors of him is a dynamic faith. It is a growing faith. It is a maturing faith. It is designed to be an ever-expanding faith. And as it grows and expands, it produces more than the small faith. That's why Tim read those texts. And I will come back to them one more time in just a moment. But should you not realize that Jesus said repeatedly these words, O you of little faith. He didn't say no faith. His problem wasn't that many of his followers didn't have any faith. Not when he made those statements. His problem was that many of his followers only had little faith. Oh, you of little faith, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, you of little faith, my disciples, in this little ship during the storm. Oh, you of little faith. Peter, you were walking on the water, and you took your eyes off of me, and you started to sink. Oh, you of little faith. Peter, you need a stronger faith. You need a bigger faith. You need an expanded faith. And when the disciples crossed the lake on an occasion, they started worrying about bread. We didn't bring any bread. Now, I just multiplied the loaves. And you think bread is a problem? Oh, you of little faith. Dear people, if you take nothing else away from this sermon, please believe with all of your heart that there are degrees of faith. There is such a thing as little faith, and there is such a thing as great faith. And those texts that Tim read for us make that abundantly clear. So let's just go back to Matthew 17. 
I'm reversing the order. Tim read first from 15 and then to 17. I'm going to go in the reverse order because I want you, first of all, to see the negative example of faith with regard to it being small. You, you remember the story. Jesus was up in the mount, what we call transfiguration, with three of his disciples. He comes down. The other disciples, the other nine, had been approached by a man who had an epileptic son, and he, they pleaded with those disciples, would you please do for him what you've done for so many others and see that this demon is exercised. He falls, my son falls in the fire intentionally. He falls into water. His life is continually in jeopardy. He's demon-possessed. Please, please exercise those demons. And you know what? They tried. They tried. So when Jesus comes down, they say, he says, Jesus, I appeal to your disciples to cast the demons out of my son, but they could not. Listen, the Bible says they could not. They tried. And so Jesus takes care of the problem. He casts out the demons. And a little later, the first opportunity, they say to Jesus, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And I'll give them credit for at least wanting to know why and to figure it out. I don't think they were happy with themselves either. Did you see what he said? Did you hear when Tim read it? I draw your attention. First, he complains about the faithless and twisted generation of verse 17, which has to include the, um, the disciples. But then in verse 20, he says, you, you want me to answer your question? You want an honest answer? Okay. Here it is. It's the sovereignty of God. Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. And you need to learn how to submit to the absolute sovereignty of God. Someday one of my apostles is going to say that if we ask anything according to his will, it will be done. This was not according to the will of God. Learn how to submit to the strange and mysterious providence of God. Is that what he said? No. He looks him right in the eyes and he says, okay, I'm going to tell you what the problem is. It's your faith. What, we don't have any faith? No, 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 you've got faith. It's your little faith. Your faith is too small. And no wonder on another occasion they said, Lord, increase our faith. And that's something that we should pray about frequently. Their faith was too small. But in contrast to little faith, what do we have? It's the other passage that Tim read. So now just quickly go over, please, to chapter 15. And I want you to remember this woman from Canaan and what went on in her life. And by the way, while you're turning there, I'll just remind you, we're not going to go to this passage, but earlier in Matthew, it happens to be in chapter 8, there was a centurion who said, I've got a servant at home, he's paralyzed, and he's in extreme pain. And Jesus says, I'll come and take care, I'll come to your home and heal him. And you remember what the centurion said? The centurion, a Roman, Roman military leader, he says, oh, Lord, I'm unworthy for you to come to my home. I know what authority is. I'm under authority, and I have 
authority over people. I can say to this one, come, and he comes, to that one, go, and he goes, and I can say to my slave, do this and do that, and they do it. Jesus, you don't have to come to my home. I know that you are so powerful. You are so omnipotent that really all you need to do is just speak the word. And it'll happen back home. You know what Jesus said? He said, I've never seen that kind of faith in Israel. It was a Gentile. This woman's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And when Jesus finally answers this woman's prayer, please notice in verse 28, he says to her, O woman, great is your faith. Great. Now, didn't we just hear your faith is too little? Here we're hearing your faith is great. Do you disagree with me that there are degrees of faith? You cannot disagree with that. And it's quite interesting that only two times in the New Testament, as far as I can tell, Jesus used the word Um, Well, our Bibles use the word, and he marveled, or he was astonished, or he was amazed. There's three different ways of translating the word. Only two times. One of them was in Mark, I think it's chapter 8 as well, where he was in Nazareth, and the Bible says, and he could not do many, any miracles there except just a few because of their unbelief. And the text says he marveled, he was astonished, he was amazed at their unbelief. There's only two things Jesus was amazed about in the Gospels. He was amazed with unbelief, and he was amazed with faith. Amazed with it. So, I'm just trying to drive this nail home. I want to bend it over. We can't please God without faith. We must believe He exists. We must believe that He rewards those who seek Him. And that faith is meant to be a growing, dynamic persuasion of the power of God that manifests itself in asking more and more and more things that are bold, even mountain-like, so that It could be said of us, certainly not by ourselves, but by others. He is a man of great faith. I read again this week the story of Luther and one of his friends was going to die. It was certain he was very close to death. And as soon as Luther got the message, he goes into his study and and he gets on his knees and he prays. And the prayer is quoted because he wrote down what he prayed and it basically said, God, you can't do this. He's my friend. He's needed for the kingdom. I ask you right now to heal him. And he got up from his prayer and the very next day he receives a message from this man's family and say the strangest of all things happened. He coughed and a tumor was removed from his lungs and he's well. And Peter wrote the guy and said, I, Peter, Luther wrote the guy and said, why are you surprised? <laughs> we prayed about it. Great faith. So this woman, I mean, this is an amazing passage, just passage worthy of the whole sermon, but we can't do that. Isn't it something? She's not an Israelite woman. She's a Gentile. 
but she has faith. And she's just begging for her daughter. And Jesus hears it. And her words were, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. You know what Jesus did? Nothing. And the Bible tells us that she continued to do this. She was crying this repeatedly. And he said nothing. Then his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, will you please get this woman out of here? She's, in essence, driving us crazy. She just keeps wanting you to do something about her daughter. And Jesus says to them, well, you know... um, She probably needs to understand that I'm only sent to the household of Israel. She hears it. What would you do about at that point? She comes to him, and she falls down on her knees. And she cries out to him. And she just says three things. Lord, help me. And he says another discouraging thing. He says, surely you know that when a meal is prepared, the food on the table and particularly the bread is for the children. You don't take the bread that's for the children and give it to dogs. And the woman says, you're right. I'm not a child. I'm just a dog. But don't the dogs get crumbs? Can I just have a crumb from you, Jesus? You know what he says? You saw it. See it again. Verse 28. Old woman, great is your faith. So why did she get her prayer answered? And you, you might say this and you would be partially right. Well, she was fervent. You might say she also knew how to use holy arguments, which which I want to deal with next Sunday, God willing. She knew how to put holy, sanctified, biblical pressure on the Savior. Or you might say she persevered, and you'd be right. She was fervent, she knew how to use holy argument. And she was like Jacob and in essence saying, I'm not going to go unless you bless me. I'm not giving up, Jesus. It's going to be a long day. I am going to keep saying, Lord, help me. I am a dog, spiritually speaking. I don't deserve, I don't claim to be a child. I'm not trying to get you to give up ministering to the nation of Israel and spend your life with Gentiles. I don't deserve it, but Lord, help me. And you'd be right. But listen, here's my question. Upon what foundation did that fervency and that holy argument and that perseverance rest? What was underneath it? What was at the bottom of it? It was a faith. A solid, vibrant, strong, dynamic, 
persuasion that Jesus was the only one who could do it, but he could do it. And so that is the argument. Faith is a dynamic grace, and all of the other graces rest on it. Listen to how Matthew Henry put it. He said, it is her faith that he commends. There were several other graces that shone bright in her conduct in this affair. Wisdom, humility, meekness, patience, and perseverance in prayer. But these were but the product of her faith. And therefore Christ fastens upon that as the most commendable because of all graces Faith honors Christ most. Therefore, of all graces, Christ honors faith the most. You hear that? That's, that's pretty cool. Of all graces, faith honors Christ the most. Therefore, of all graces, Christ honors faith the most. And then he said something else that's just a bit removed, but I think you'll be blessed by this. He's commenting on him saying, you don't give bread to the dogs that belongs to the children. And in essence, says Henry, she said, I thank the O blessed one for that word. That's my whole case. Not of the children? True. A dog? True. Yet the dogs under the table are allowed to eat of the children's crumbs, the droppings from their master's full table. Give me that, and I am content. One crumb of power and grace from thy table shall cast the devil out of my daughter. One crumb. You see the faith? That's what gave birth to all those other beautiful virtues. So, that's really, in a sense, the heart of my message, dear brothers and sisters. And I have to ask this question. So what do we do with this fresh emphasis and insight upon the vital relationship between our degree of faith and prayer results? Are you still with me? I'm not saying what do we do with the idea that you have to have faith in order to please God. That's a given. This perhaps fresh insight on the vital relationship between our degree of faith and our prayer results. What do we do? Have I or have I not made a case that there is little faith and there is great faith, and little faith keeps us from having certain results. And big faith causes us to have other results. Can I just squeeze in a tiny little parenthesis that's very theological? And uh, Pastor Aaron and many other discerning men in our church and my fellow pastors and some of you will know what I'm talking about. There's been a recent division over the so-called impassibility of God. I can't go off on that. The truth is God is impassable. What that means is that he does not have passions like we do. But one of the arguments of those who deny the fact that 
God does have passions that are pure and holy and regulated by the perfection of his being, one of the arguments against that is he can't be a God who responds to his creation because if he does, then he has to change. See what I'm saying? If he looks upon you as under the wrath of God and then later looks at you with pleasure in Christ, then in some regard, he's changed. Does your Bible or does not your Bible teach you that without faith it is impossible to please God and he will not answer the prayers of those who do not have faith? Okay? It does. So when God graciously gives them faith through regenerating grace and they now believe with all their heart that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him and they come to him humbly like this woman, and they call upon him, is he or is he not pleased? Of course he's pleased. And, but it's the, it's the changelessness of his person that causes him to always frown upon unbelief and always smile upon faith. And so he does answer prayers that have faith. That's all. That's just the little parentheses. But what do we do with this? Now, practically, what does heritage do with this? What do you do with this? What do we do with the realization that we can bring increased pleasure to the heart of God through increased faith? Did I demonstrate that? I think I did. Could have I done it better? Yes. Are you fully persuaded? I'm not sure, but I hope many of you are. I'm asking the question again. What do we do with the realization that we can bring increased pleasure to the heart of God through increased faith? The more faith we have in Him, the greater we glorify Him. Is He numb about that? Does He not care about how much we glorify Him? Is He not more pleased when we glorify Him more and more and more? Of course He is. An increased faith enables us to glorify him in an increased way. What do we do with it? That's the question. Little faith, little results. Great faith, great results. Do we just remain unmoved? Does this sermon just become one in a series? And you say, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Or do we change? Do you change? Do I change? Does our church change? Do we formulate no resolves? Do we go out of this worship center today and say, yeah, it was, it was good. But no resolves? No resolves? Or do we determine that by His grace, we're going to grow in the grace of faith? that we're going to utilize the means of grace in order to grow in the grace, especially the grace of faith. And what are those means that God uses to help us grow in our faith? Truly, the two most prominent are living in this word and staying on our knees in prayer. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God as we live in the book and absorb more and more truths about God, we find that we trust Him more and more implicitly. 
He's greater than I ever thought he was. I have more reason now to trust him than ever before. And it'll come out in your prayer life. It'll come out in your prayer life. And so, nose in the book, knees on the floor. Nose in the book, knees on the floor. Nose in the book, knees on the floor. And through the reading and the assimilating of God's word, our faith will grow, especially as we pray and ask for an increase of faith. We need to memorize prayer promises, those that I read for you this morning. You should memorize all of them. We need need to meet with brothers and sisters just to pray for increased measures of grace. We need to choose some mountains. I think Jonathan challenged us at the beginning of this year with our vision for 2015. He challenged us to move some mountains and to think big. And I think some mountains for us are revival, Massive conversions. Did you hear Pastor Mark this morning praying about that? More missionaries sent out. Church plants. Miraculous healings. Supernatural victories over sins in our lives. It's got to be a lot more than just praying about losing some weight and reading through three books in the year 2015. This church needs revival. This church needs revival. We're way, way, way off from where we ought to be. Your pastors are far from where they ought to be. This week, one of the great blessings of the conference, and Tim and Aaron were there to hear Pastor Bill Hughes talk about revival in the history of the church, and at the right time, we'll get a copy of that. And he told stories that were just tantalizing. You just sit in there and just say, Oh, God, God, could it be that you would do that again in our day? And most revivals were preceded by prayer or associated with prayer. This church needs to be revived. We have no reason to be proud about anything, anything, anything. We are unprofitable servants, corporately and individually. And we need to plead with God that he will revive us and that he will massively convert sinners and that this church will grow not primarily by transfers. We're thankful for people who've transferred. Some of the strongest leaders in our church have come to us from other churches. We praise God for that. But what we want to do is we want to baptize convert after convert after convert out of raw paganism. We need to plant some churches. We need to see some miraculous healing. And I think we need to just get real bold with God and say, God, this is what we're going to ask for. We're going to ask that we plant X number of churches by the year Y. That we see X number of people saved by the end of this year. In fact, I'll just make this announcement right now. As soon as the sermon's over, go back to the office. Joan will be back there. Those of you who filled out cards and those of you who care to pray about the cards that were filled out, you can pick up a list of all the people, first names, you won't know who it is, it's not going to be embarrassing, but of people that are being prayed for. Most of them are not here, occasionally they're here. People that are being prayed for, we want them saved. The year is more than half over. Is the reason they're not saved because of our little faith? Maybe, maybe. 
please be sure to pick that up. But we need to be definitive and decisive as a church. We need revival. We need conversions. We need more missionaries. So how are we going to afford that? That's God's problem, and I say that reverently. Remember the guy that, was in, that, the guy that struggled with uh, depression and nervousness, and he finally went to see a guy that, that could promise to help him with all of his depression and nervousness because he never smiled, and his friend sees him, and he's whistling all over the place, and he said, Bill, what in the world ever happened? He says, oh. He said, you used to always be depressed. He said, yeah, I know, but I, uh, I, I got somebody to help me with worry. And he says, man, where'd you get that? And he told him, he said, how much that cost? And he says, $10,000. $10,000? How are you going to pay for that? He said, that's not my worry. That's his. <laughs> but I'm saying sincerely, if we pray that God will raise up more missionaries from this church, our problem isn't to figure out how we're going to pay for it. At least that's not our first problem. God will take care of that. This church needs revival. This church needs conversions. This church needs to see the mighty hand of God move. All of us as individuals and all of us corporately. And it can happen. And please, this is the last thing I'm going to say. Please, if you take nothing else from this sermon, please go away from this and saying, and plead with God, God, I need an increase of faith so that my prayers will bring more glory to you. Amen. Heavenly Father, work this into our souls. Change us individually and corporately. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. confessing to God and each other how great he is. He's able to answer our prayers because he's great. And it's almost impossible to put into words how great he is. But let's just meditate on that. And we're going to sing How Great Is Our God. Just a chorus a couple times. And, uh, and worship him one more time. So we